Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, August 8th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Niger closes its airspace after rejecting an ECOWAS ultimatum. Pakistan's ex-Prime Minister Imran Khan is sentenced to jail. The Philippines summons China's envoy over a water cannon incident. U.S. scientists achieve a net energy gain for a second time through nuclear fusion. Data reveals that half of crimes solved by U.K. police result in no charge. Four Syrian soldiers are killed in an Israeli missile attack. PayPal launches a dollar-backed stablecoin. A survey finds that a third of Britons can't define transgender women. Musk's ex says it will pay the legal bills of anyone unfairly treated for posting on the platform. And the FDA approves the first pill for postpartum depression. In our top story, Niger closes its airspace after rejecting an ECOWAS ultimatum. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, DW, WION, France 24, and Voice of America. Leaders of a coup in Niger on Sunday announced the closure of the country's airspace after rejecting an ultimatum from the Economic Community of West African States, or ECOWAS, to reinstate ousted President Mohamed Bazoum or risk possible military intervention. Citing the threat of an alleged preparation for intervention by two unnamed Central African states, the country's military junta said the airspace would be, quote, closed for all aircraft until further notice, adding that any violations would be met with an energetic and immediate response. The 15-nation regional bloc had issued a one-week deadline asking the generals to relinquish power by midnight on Sunday after Bazoum was detained and overthrown by members of his guard on July 26th. A day earlier, French Foreign Minister Catherine Colonna said the country, quote, supports with firmness and determination the efforts of ECOWAS to defeat this coup attempt, but didn't say whether France would militarily assist an ECOWAS intervention. Meanwhile, ECOWAS's political affairs commissioner, Abdel Fattah Moussa, stated that the bloc would shortly decide when and where to intervene following the seventh coup in West and Central Africa within three years. In another development, Salafu Modi, one of the Nigerian coup leaders, reportedly asked the Russian mercenary group Wagner for help during a visit to Mali as, quote, they will become their guarantee to hold on to power. On this program, we like to separate the spin from the facts. Those were the facts, and our first narrative spin is the pro-establishment narrative from the Washington Post. Niger is the last stronghold of democratic pluralism and the rule of law in the Sahel. If Niger follows in the footsteps of Mali and Burkina Faso in being ruled by an autocratic junta, it would further destabilize the entire region and impact the world. Not only could Russia's notorious Wagner mercenaries capitalize on this opportunity, but Islamist extremists will also take advantage of the political instability. ECOWAS and the international community must restore the country's democratically elected government and constitutional order. Global research gives us the establishment critical narrative. ECOWAS's deadline has expired, but the bloc of West African states should think twice before using force and making itself a tool of Western, especially French, neocolonial interests in resource-rich Niger. France no longer has the military presence and influence to project sufficient power and intervene efficiently. The country faces a geopolitical dilemma as a result, because whether it pushes for a military invasion of Niger or not, Paris faces the inevitable collapse of its neocolonial system in the region. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 24% chance that ECOWAS will launch a military intervention in Niger before August 12th of 2023. 
Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. Pakistan's ex-Prime Minister Imran Khan is given a three-year jail sentence. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, and the Irish Times. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan was arrested in Lahore on Saturday after a court sentenced him to three years in prison following his conviction on corruption charges. He called for nationwide protests in response to the ruling. The former Pakistani cricket captain, who served as prime minister from 2018 to 2022, was accused of misusing his office to buy and sell state possessions worth more than 140 million Pakistani rupees, or approximately 500,000 American dollars. Since his removal from office, Khan has been arrested twice and slapped with more than 150 legal cases, including several charges of corruption, terrorism, and inciting people to violence over deadly protests after his arrest in May when his followers attacked government and military property across the country. Khan has denied any wrongdoing. His lawyer said he is working on a petition against the decision in the high court. Khan's political party, Pakistan Tariq-e-Insaf, or PTI, said in a statement it had already filed another appeal to the Supreme Court on Saturday. Thank you for the facts of that story, Scott. Our first spin is Narrative A, and it comes from Islamic City. Khan's arrest is illegal and politically motivated. The accusations against him are completely fabricated, with his opponents pursuing 80 different cases against him, including completely baseless accusations of murder, sedition, blasphemy, and terrorism, in the hopes that something will stick. The government wants to remove Khan from the electoral contest because it fears his popularity among voters. And Geo News brings us Narrative B. The arrest of Imran Khan is not politically motivated. He is accused of theft and corruption. His denial of every accusation merely serves to demonstrate that he avoids accountability in every way. His case has been investigated thoroughly and the verdict followed due process. With his sentence, Khan will be disqualified from politics for five years. You know, he's feisty just like his uncle Genghis was. I knew it would get him in trouble eventually. (laughs) I'm a Kublai guy. I'm a scholar. (laughs) The Philippines summons a Chinese envoy over a water cannon incident. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Rappler, BBC News, Guardian, Reuters, and Financial Times. Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. stated Monday that China's envoy has been summoned after Chinese coast guards used water cannons to block Philippine vessels carrying supplies for its military personnel in the South China Sea. Foreign Affairs Secretary Enrique Manalo personally visited Ambassador Huang Zillian to give him a special message, with Philippine Ambassador to Beijing Jaime Flor Cruz also issuing a protest note in Beijing. This comes as the Philippine Coast Guard, or PCG, claimed that its Chinese counterpart carried out excessive and unlawful actions over the weekend, as boats attempted to reach 2nd Thomas Shoal in the Spratly Islands. While this incident is the first time since November 2021 that the Chinese Coast Guard has used water cannons against a Philippine resupply operation to the shoal, China routinely blocks or shadows Philippine ships in the contested waters. China claims sovereignty over almost the entire South China Sea, including the region around the submerged reef that contains a World War II-era ship intentionally grounded in 1999, which now stations Philippine troops. Despite an international tribunal ruling against China's claims to the area in 2016, Beijing stated that it took necessary control measures after two ships and two Coast Guard vessels illegally trespassed into its waters. Thanks for that update, Eric. Phil Starr brings us an anti-China narrative. The actions of the Chinese Coast Guard being under the control of China's Central Military Commission are another example of hostile military action 
by Beijing against the Philippines. In order to counter this threat and continued violation of international law, the Philippines must draw on external support and respond both sternly and effectively. China Daily gives us a pro-China narrative for this story. Despite having long promised to remove the warship illegally stranded in China's Renai Reef, the Philippines keep infringing on Chinese sovereignty and international law by sending ships into the reef without authorization to repair the warship for permanent occupation of the reef. Water cannons were used to avoid collision after warnings fell on deaf ears. China has every right to defend its territory. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says there's a 19% chance that the United States will withdraw from any of its current mutual defense treaties by the year 2030. Have you ever been hit by a water cannon, by the way? I was just curious. One of the, those real water cannons? No, like that 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 Captain Phillips <laughs> stuff? No, I have not. I'm, I'm super soaker and lower. And yeah, that, that, that's where I've been. Scientists achieve the second net energy gain in nuclear fusion. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fizz, The Telegraph, and The Guardian. Scientists at the federal Lawrence Livermore Natural Laboratory in California on Sunday announced they achieved net energy gain in a nuclear fusion reaction for a second time, but with a higher energy yield this time. Inputting about 2 megajoules of power from lasers, scientists were able to generate 3.5 megajoules of energy, up from 3.15 megajoules during a December 2022 experiment. This means more energy was produced from fusion than the laser energy used to drive it. Nuclear fusion, which is considered by many to be a solution to the global emissions problem, smashes together two types of hydrogen, deuterium and tritium, to make neutrons and large amounts of energy with no greenhouse gases. As opposed to nuclear fission, which also produces no carbon emissions, fusion comes with no risk of nuclear disaster and produces much less radioactive waste. However, scientists haven't generated the 300 megajoules required to power the lasers. While it's hoped that both fusion and fission will become a baseline energy output, supplemented by other renewables like wind and solar by the second half of the century, Livermore can currently only use its lasers once a day. New Scientist is going to give us our first spin. It's Narrative A. Although scientists can only ignite this fusion process very briefly, once a day, this news means we have the science to achieve a long-awaited phenomenon. Whether from lasers or magnetic fields, the engineering building blocks have been created to push us into an emissions-free future to truly combat the climate crisis. And Narrative B comes from the journal Science. These breakthroughs are exciting and should be expanded upon, but we may run out of the tritium needed to power these experiments. Scientists haven't generated more energy than they input, and could be empty-handed by the mid-century deadline they've set for establishing nuclear fusion as a renewable energy source. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that nuclear fusion will provide at most 10% of the world's primary energy by September of the year 2060. Turning our attention to the United Kingdom as half of crimes solved by police results in no charges. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, Independent, PA Media, and Metro. An analysis by The Telegraph has found that only 51.8% of solved crimes in the UK resulted in charges against the offender in 2022-2023, down from a 63.7% charge rate from 2015 to 2016, when data was first recorded. This news follows data released last week from the Home Office, which showed that only 5.7% of crimes committed in England and Wales resulted in a charge or summons since April of 2022. 
More offenses are resulting in alternate diversions, such as community resolutions where the offender apologizes to the victim and sometimes agrees to pay compensation in exchange for an admission of guilt. Community resolutions have risen to 27.2% in 2022-2023, compared to 13.5% in 2014-2015. For stalking and harassment, charges dropped from 72.1% to 48.8% from 2014-2015 to 2022-2023, while violence causing injury saw the charge rate drop from 65.7% to 49.6%. The percentage of these offenses resulting in community resolutions also rose from the low teens to the mid-20s. The Ministry of Justice has also announced plans to deal with inconsistencies in how minor crimes are dealt with nationwide. The guidance will help give police a list of offenses that should and shouldn't be resolved through the caution system, excluding violent and sex crimes from receiving lesser penalties. These revelations have put pressure on the ruling Conservative Party, with the opposition Labour Party calling the Tory record on crime abysmal. The Conservatives responded by pointing to a 46% drop in violent crime and the 20,000 new police officers hired over their 13-year rule. All right, we have a left narrative spin on this story from Bloomberg. Over a decade of Tory austerity has gutted the criminal justice system in the UK as deep cuts to public safety shake the public's trust in the police. The abysmal clearance rate for crimes and the sharp increase in diversions applied to keep offenders out of a strained court system are testimony to conservative mismanagement. They've allowed crime to continue to blight communities across the country. The Telegraph gives us the right narrative. Unlike Labour, the Conservatives have a real plan to deal with crime in the UK. Instead of going after people for social media posts or misgendering, the Tories will take the wokeness out of law and order and get police back to work solving real crimes. The UK needs less left-wing virtue signaling and a more tough back-to-basics approach on crime. Tragedy strikes Damascus as four Syrian soldiers are killed in an Israeli missile strike. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times of Israel, DW, Arab News, France 24, and BBC News. Syria's state-affiliated media outlet Sana'a reported that an Israeli missile strike on the capital Damascus killed four Syrian soldiers and wounded another four early on Monday. Sana'a also reported that Syrian air defense intercepted some of the missiles. Sana'a claimed that the attack caused some material damage and that the missiles had targeted some points in the vicinity of the city of Damascus, but refrained from reporting specific details. The UK-based Syrian Observatory for Human Rights said that the strike targeted a warehouse near the Damascus International Airport, but this is unconfirmed. The Syrian Observatory for Human Rights also said that two additional Iran-backed fighters were killed in the strike, but their nationalities were unknown in an unverified report. Sana'a called on the UN and the Security Council to take immediate action to force Israel to desist from these criminal policies. Israel has carried out hundreds of airstrikes on the country since the start of the civil war, mostly targeting government-controlled territories, international airports in Damascus and Aleppo, and Iranian-backed forces. Iran intervened in Syria on behalf of the government shortly after the war began. Israel rarely comments on its attacks in Syria, but it has said that it will not accept Iran potentially expanding its footprint in its Arab neighbor. Those were the facts, and our first spin begins with an anti-Israel narrative coming from foreign affairs. Israel has been conducting airstrikes against suspected Iranian weapons transfers and personnel and its proxies in Syria for almost a decade. Though the strikes are part of a low-intensity conflict to slow Iran's growing entrenchment in Syria, the West has seemingly dropped its previous plan of diplomacy to allow Israel and other allies to use military force instead 
to settle its grievances with Tehran. This risky strategy underestimates the magnitude and repercussions of a military escalation. And we have a pro-Israel narrative from Al Monitor. Syria is a conflict zone with many actors, all of which can cause this shadow war to go hot. Meanwhile, Iran, with its coordinated effort with Russia, which controls much of the Syrian airspace, risks pushing it over the edge. Israel has been clear that it will not permit Iran to freely move weapons and fighters through Syria if such activities threaten Israeli security, and it's justified to target Iranian assets in any of the countries into which Tehran has dug its tentacles. PayPal launches its first dollar-backed stablecoin, and here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Verge, and CNBC. PayPal has launched its first stablecoin cryptocurrency called PayPal USD, which will be backed by the value of the US dollar to reduce friction for virtual payments and provide faster, cheaper money transfers across borders. PYUSD will be applicable for person-to-person payments to fund purchases at checkouts and to transfer funds between PayPal and other outside wallets. Currency supported by PayPal will also be convertible to and from PYUSD. The coin is issued by PayPal's brokerage partner Paxos, which previously issued the dollar-backed Binance-branded stablecoin BUSD. However, the New York State Department of Financial Services in February ordered it to stop issuing BUSD. PYUSD, which launched Monday, will become available in the coming weeks for U.S. customers with PayPal balance accounts and on the PayPal-owned Venmo app soon. Though stablecoins are designed to hold a steady value by being tied to a fiat currency, PYUSD should always be equal to $1. Some have not. For example, stablecoin TerraUSD saw $40 billion wiped away after the crypto backing at Luna collapsed. Following the news of PYUSD, shares of PayPal were up 2%. The company says its coin won't be linked to a complicated algorithm like Terra was, but rather Paxos trusts blockchain infrastructure. Tech Story brings us Narrative A. Though past stablecoins have certainly not been entirely successful, PayPal, which has a history in the crypto world, will help bring legitimacy to the emerging financial industry as the company will be cautious amid regulatory suspicion, as well as back the coin with the reliable dollar. Consumers can now have the faith in the privacy and stability of banking with crypto. Tech Story gives us Narrative B. While PayPal may bring some nominal legitimacy to this young industry, We can't forget the fact that Facebook has already tried and abandoned its own stablecoin, and PayPal itself has previously paused its launch due to regulatory pushback. No one can put all their eggs in the stablecoin basket until both the private and public sectors can provide evidence of its safety. What do you think? Will you be transferring all your uh, U.S. currency into a PayPal stablecoin right away? Absolutely. You know, I'll put it right there next to the Golden Gate Bridge that I bought from you last week. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the VIG's running on that, by the way. I need you, <laughs> okay. I need, you know, you got okay. to start, start yeah. making the payments on that All right, bridge. all right. At this point, with the way San Francisco's going, it might be for sale soon, to be honest <laughs> I know, with you. I know, right? <laughs> A new poll says over a third of Britons can't define a transgender woman. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Telegraph, Bloomberg, Daily Caller, Epoch Times, and Daily Mail. A survey published on Monday has found that some 35% of people in the UK don't know that a transgender woman is someone registered as male at birth, with the term trans woman causing even greater confusion as 40% defined it incorrectly. This comes as the Edinburgh-based company analysis group Murray Blackburn McKenzie commissioned Servation to conduct separate polls for each term of 1,008 and 1,026 UK adults respectively in June this year. 
The term transgender woman was correctly understood at a higher rate by men and in Scotland, while the term trans woman was better identified by women and in Northern Ireland. They were understood least among people in London and among people aged 25 to 34, of whom only 55% correctly defined the term transgender woman and 52% identified the term trans woman as someone transitioning to female. This data calls into question public understanding over the gender debate amid high levels of misunderstanding and confusion around commonly used terms, prompting researchers to urge for more explicit language. Figures collected in the 2021 UK census found that 262,000 people in England and Wales identified as a different gender than the one assigned at birth, with 48,000 trans men, 48,000 trans women, and another 30,000 non-binary. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a left narrative coming from Glamour magazine. While gender terms are finally becoming acknowledged and respected, there is still a long way to go as a significant share of society remains unaware of what simple terms such as transgender woman and trans woman mean. The language we use is crucial to ensure that the world is safer for trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people, so awareness must be improved. And here comes the right narrative from LifeSite News. This survey is yet another example of how out of touch with reality the transgender movement is. Though it has become mainstream in progressive political parties, academia, and the media, to the point that it is illegal to misgender someone in some places, ordinary people barely understand what it means to say that someone is a transgender woman or a trans woman. X to pay legal bills for those treated unfairly. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNBC, Fox News, Cointelegraph, Euronews, and Guardian. Elon Musk on Saturday said his ex-platform, formerly known as Twitter, will pay the legal bills of people unfairly treated by their employer for posting or liking something on the app, also offering to sue on their behalf. In response to a post about legal actions prompting behavioral changes, Musk said, We won't just sue. It will be extremely loud, and we will go after the boards of directors of the companies, too. Musk bought the platform with the hope of bringing more free speech to online discourse, a move lauded by conservatives who feel they've been unfairly silenced and targeted for their views. Users wrote to Musk about their stories of alleged unfair treatment regarding issues such as transgender bathrooms. More than 200,000 people have liked Musk's post, with thousands telling their stories of alleged mistreatment. Musk acknowledged one woman who was allegedly fired for following the account Libs of TikTok after a transgender activist pressured her employer, Limited Run Games. While Musk's free speech absolutist stance has drawn praise from many, some say his policies open X up to more hate speech. Critics have also claimed that Musk hypocritically fired employees whose stances don't align with his own. Musk's social media platform has gone through a series of changes since his takeover last October, most recently changing its iconic name and logo. Despite a new high of 540 million users, X is trying to grow revenue to offset a loss of advertisers. All right, we have some diametrically opposed narratives on this story. The Blaze brings us the right narrative spin. It's refreshing to see some meaningful pushback against the left's vicious cancel culture. For far too long, journalists and so-called activists have bullied dissenters, threatening to destroy their livelihoods by reporting any thought crimes to their employers. Debate has been stifled as unpopular political views can result in job loss. Musk continues to be a leader in the fight for free speech and against cancel culture. 
We counter that with a left narrative coming from The Verge. Musk's lack of self-awareness and hypocrisy have reached new heights. The so-called free speech warrior is offering to pay legal bills for people who were unfairly treated by employers. But he seems to forget that he is one of those employers. Musk fired seven engineers for criticizing his failed policies, yet won't be funding their lawsuits. Musk loves drawing attention to himself, but he continues to fail in everything Twitter X related. That uh, employer limited run games, that name stuck out to me. They have a business model where they come out with limited editions of video games that are scarce because they only have a certain amount they come out with. And then people have to kind of rush to buy them because they only exist for a short period of time. It's kind of a weird business model. I don't know if I like it. It makes it so it's really hard to collect those things uh, intentionally. You're really giving yourself away, Scott. I'm just saying. (laughs) Next story. The FDA approves its first pill for postpartum depression. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, the Associated Press, Washington Post, Reuters, CBS, and NBC. On Friday, the U.S. FDA approved Zerzuve, the first oral pill to treat postpartum depression, or PPD. According to scientists, taking Zerzuve once a day for 14 days seems to ease symptoms of adults experiencing severe depression related to childbirth or pregnancy for months at a time. However, additional courses of the medication may be needed. According to drug makers Sage Therapeutics and Biogen, Zerzuve is expected to be commercially available in the fourth quarter of 2023 after the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration schedules it as a controlled substance. PPD reportedly affects an estimated 400,000 women a year, and the FDA states Zerzuve could benefit many of these women coping with extreme and sometimes life-threatening feelings. Previously, the only FDA-approved treatment for PPD was Zolrezo, an intravenous injection that could be administered only in certain healthcare facilities. Zerzuve's approval is based on two randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, multi-center studies that showed women who took the pill had fewer signs of depression over four to six weeks than those who received a dummy pill. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from Wall Street Journal. Postpartum depression is a serious and potentially life-threatening condition that typically lasts longer than the anxiety or fatigue many women experience after giving birth. Zerzuve's approval is a game-changer for women's mental health and maternal depression, as the pill will dramatically expand the number of women who can be treated for their inability to feel pleasure and suicidal ideations following childbirth. And Narrative B comes from STAT. While this is a promising development, it only addresses one side of the equation. The first step in treating PPD is diagnosing those at risk of maternal mental health complications. In the U.S., as many as 50% of PPD cases are overlooked, leaving mothers unwittingly victims of this crippling illness. It's time to normalize PPD and develop the much-needed systems for accurate diagnosis. Thanks for joining us for the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, August 8th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. You can find out more about Improve the News at improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join Join us next time on Improve the News.